this class is being filmed and put on the internet by TorahAnytime.com, T-O-R-A-H-A-N-Y-T-I-M-E.com. Uh, it is a free service. This, together with 35 other lectures almost every week, uh, not by me, but by many, many people, uh, are being uh, recorded and as a public service uh, put on the Internet. So uh, if you cannot make it to a class, um, if you couldn't be bothered getting out of your couch, uh, if, you, uh, uh, if it's inclement weather, uh, if it's too nice weather to be inside and you want to sit outside with your laptop, whatever, right, if you're old or infirm, uh, or um, you just are into the Internet, then you can look at Torah classes on TorahAnytime.com. That was the plug. Is that okay? Okay, good. Okay, fine. Okay. Let me start uh, by uh, pointing out that the first words of God to the first Jew, Abraham, first words God said to Abraham were, Lech lecha, Go to the land of Israel. First thing God says to Abraham is go to the land of Israel. Very interesting that that is really the first thing he says. And Rabbi Yehuda Halevi, in his book, The Kuzari, explains it in the following way. He says, God, like a farmer who is walking in in a desert and sees a beautiful flower struggling for existence in the dry climate of the desert. He takes the flower and transplants it into a beautiful fertile soil, with great sunlight, with lots of water, with a nurturing environment, Mozart in the background, the whole works, everything a plant needs to thrive, and the plant will, of course, thrive. So he says, God saw Abraham in the land of the Ur-Kazdim, the Chaldees, Sumeria. He sees a beautiful flower struggling to survive in a horrific environment. And so he transplants Abraham into the environment of the land of Israel which is an environment that encourages spiritual growth. It's an environment which, which encourages prophecy. And it's an environment in which the soul can actually thrive. So that's the first thing God says to Abraham. Not only that, but his son Yitzchak, Isaac, God tells Abraham to go and take Isaac to Mount Moriah and to offer him up as a sacrifice, as an offering. And we are told that after that, the sages tell us, Isaac, Yitzchak, never left the land of Israel. You know why he never left Israel? Because he was like a sacrifice in the temple. Just as the sacrifices can never go outside the walls, either of the temple or Jerusalem, so Yitzchak could never leave Israel because of his sanctity and his holiness. The next generation of Jews, Yaakov, we know that Yosef was sold by his brothers to Egypt. Uh, And that's actually what caused the descent of the Jewish people into the land of Egypt. I remember doing guard duty. And uh, I was standing on a guard tower, which is where you usually do guard duty or whatever. And I'm standing there with a guy who'd recently made Aliyah from Russia. His name was Yosef. So we're standing on the guard tower in a place called Dotan. Dotan. So uh, we're standing there and he says, What are we doing here? I said, Shmirad, you know, we're doing guard duty. What do you think? He says, Lo, 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 lo. What are we doing in Dotan? What connection do we have to this place? There's nothing in Dotan. There's an army base. There is an archaeological dig uh, of not of major significance, and there's a small Arab town called Arabeh, right nearby, very nasty little place. So what, he says, what are we doing in Dotan? I said, your name is Yosef. How could you ask that question? He says, what are you talking about? I said, who are you named after, Yosef? He says, my grandfather. I said, who's he named after? He says, his grandfather. I said, look, keep going back. You're not named after Joseph Stalin, right? I said, I assume that ultimately you are named after Yosef in the Torah. Yosef in the Torah, right, his brothers sold him to Egypt. That's really was the seed, the kernel, 
from which the Jewish people followed and became a nation. We were transformed from a family into a nation where in the land of Egypt. When we came out of there, we were born as a nation. So Yosef was the beginning of the journey of the Jewish people to nationhood. I said, do you know where Yosef was when his brothers sold him? He said, I haven't, got an, I haven't got a clue. I said, well, at the end of basic training, in addition to a gun, you'll also get your Tanakh, little Bible. I said, if you look there, you'll see it says that Yosef and his brothers went to a place called Dotan. That's where they sold him in Dotan, in this very place. Yosef was sold by his brothers to Egypt. I said, not only that, Yosef. I said, but when Yosef died in Egypt, he said to his brothers before he died, he said, don't bury me in Egypt embalm me, put me in a coffin, a sarcophagus, and bury me in the land of Israel. And that's what his brothers did. When they came out of Egypt, they took Yosef and they buried him in the land of Israel. Do you know where he was buried? I asked Yosef. He said, no. I said, he was buried about 10 kilometers from here in the city of Shechem. So I said, furthermore, Yosef, when the Jewish kingdom broke up after King Solomon's death into the northern kingdom called Yisrael and the southern kingdom called Yehuda, the kings of the south were descendants of David, tribe of Judah. The kings in the north were from the tribe of Ephraim, descendants of Yosef. I said, guess where they were when they were appointed as kings by Achia Hashiloni. He says, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's somewhere right near here. I said, you've got it. I said, about five kilometers from here, on the road to Shechem, Achia Hashiloni anoints that first king of the tribe of Joseph as king of the northern kingdom. I said, anyone called Yosef shouldn't be asking what we're doing in Dotan. So, Dotan and other places like that, we have a continuous connection. And not only Yosef, but all the tribes, all the 12, uh, uh, the 12 sons of Yaakov, including Jacob, who were actually, who died in Egypt, were all brought back from Egypt and buried in Israel. In fact, one of the earliest recorded purchases of land ever, recorded in great detail, is the bargaining of Avraham with Ephron the Hittite to buy Hebron, the cave of Machpelah, the double cave, Hebron. And he paid for it in the presence of all the Hittites, with witnesses, with full money, an exorbitant price. He paid 400 shekel. Now you'll say to yourself, how do you know 400 shekel is an exorbitant price? Right, 400 shekel for a, a large piece of land is great. Of course, we are talking about approximately th- more than 3,000 years ago. So what was 400 shekel worth then? Well, around that time, the Code of Hammurabi was being written. And according to the Code of Hammurabi, the average person earned about six shekel a year. So if the average person earned six shekel a year and you are paying 400 shekel for a cave, where are you living? Obviously Manhattan. But again, he's paying 400 shekel. That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a big price. But again, Avraham felt that the land of Israel was worth every single red agura, right? So he paid the 400 shekel. And if we go further along in history, we find that the history of the Jewish people revolved around our connection to Israel. When we came out of Egypt, we headed for the land of Israel. We were in Israel, as Rabbi Rutenberg pointed out, and actually, strangely enough, as uh, no other than David Ben-Gurion pointed out, Ben-Gurion, in his address to the Knesset in 1950, said the following. He said, on the 14th of May 1948, a new state was not founded from nothing. Rather, the crown was restored to its pristine splendor 1,813 years after the independence of Israel was destroyed during the days of Bar Kokhba and Rabbi Akiva. 
and Ben Gurion is right, and it goes back way beyond that. Right? The Jews enter Israel in approximately the Middle Bronze Age interchange period around 1270, and already about 100 or so years after that, we already have a pharaoh called Merneptah mentioning that he had fought a war against the nation Israel in the land of Canaan. He, not only does he call us a nation, and he calls us by the name Israel, but we are already identified with the land of Canaan, the land of Israel. And we are talking about approximately 3,000 years ago, folks. So already then, right, the Jewish people are identified as a nation, identified as a nation called Israel, and we're living in the land of Israel. And we were there for 400 years as the only independent nation there, an alliance of 12 tribes, until approximately 400 years after that, we had the first Jewish king, King Saul. And then we had King David. And King David, of course, ruled from the capital of Israel. What was the capital of Israel? Where was King David anointed as king? This is a trick question, as most rabbinic questions are. Hebron, correct. King David was anointed as king in Hebron, and there he ruled the Jewish people for seven years until he managed to get control of the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem from the Jebusites. He conquers Jerusalem, except for one place he didn't conquer. The Temple Mount, he did not conquer. You know what he did? How did he get hold of the Temple Mount? He bought it. He got money from all the tribes, and he created that as a universally owned center of the Jewish people. And there he moved the Ark to the city of Jerusalem, And of course, today there are extensive excavations of the city of David, Right, the ancient city of Jerusalem, which is actually down the hill from the modern-day old city, the old—it's not the new city, but the old, the newer old city, than, which is newer than King David's place, the Ir David. Amazing stuff being found there. They have found a staircase used by pilgrims to go up to the temple when they came for Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot. They have found the source of the spring in which the priests in the temple used to dip the mikveh, in which they used to dip in order to go into the temple and serve there. The spring, which was put where the kings of Israel were appointed as king over the spring as a sign of bubbling forth of life and of giving. They have found there a collection of royal seals, of kings of Israel, seals, not the oh, type, but the seals that you seal documents with on the rings. The seals of Jewish kings, the seals of the scribes of Jewish kings, amazing stuff they have found there. And it didn't end there. King Solomon builds, uh, King David makes Jerusalem the capital. King Solomon builds the temple there. And he builds the temple on Mount Moriah. And legend has it, cannot confirm this, legend has it, the story is told of two brothers who lived on either side of that hill. One brother was wealthy, but he was not married. The other, the other brother was married with lots of children and not wealthy. There could be some causative issues there, right? So, um, and what, they both were farmers. The brother who was wealthy used to say to himself every evening, he'd say, you know what, my brother has got a large family. He needs the money. So he'd take sheep, a sheep from his own flock. He'd carry it over the hill and secretly put it in his brother's farm at night. His brother said to himself, my brother, you know, he doesn't have a family. At the very least, he should be rich. So he'd take sheep from his flock and take it back over the hill to his brother. Never, the poor sheep gets slapped back and forth, back into one sheep, whatever. Anyway, so what happens is, one night, both brothers are taking a sheep to give to the other brother. They meet on the top of this mountain, and they see what is happening, and they hug and cry and kiss each other, and that's where the temple is built. There's another legend about another different two brothers, another hill in Jerusalem, 
where one brother used to say, my brother's rich, I've got a big family. So he'd go and steal a sheep from his brother. And the other one would say, my brother's got a big family, I should be rich, so he'd go and steal from his brother. One night they meet on the hill, realising each one had been stealing from the other, they had a major fight there, beat each other up, and on that hill is where the Knesset was built. (laughs) So I cannot confirm either legend, but anyway... Although the Knesset one's probably more likely to be true than the other one. But okay. Right. But that mountain where the temple was built, that temple lasted, King Solomon's temple lasted for approximately 300 years until the Assyrians came. The Assyrians didn't destroy the temple, but they did exile 10 tribes of Israel and destroy the northern kingdom. And if it was not for Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, and his trust in God and his thick wall and his tunnel that he dug under the wall, the Jewish people would have been utterly and completely destroyed. So King Hezekiah, right, saved the day. The Jewish people continued and the southern kingdom called Judea, and we are called Jews because we are from Judea, Hudeus in Greek, right, the kingdom of Judah in the south. And that lasted for another hundred years until the Babylonians, flavor of the month in the World Dictator Club, Babylonians come in and Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple and exiles the Jews to Babylon. In Babylon, we were there for 70 years. During that time, King David prophetically said that the Jews sitting on the rivers of Babylon would cry and weep for the temple. And when the captors, when the Babylonians said, play us some songs from Israel, they'd say, how can we play music? when our city is lying in ruins. And the Jews took an oath. What oath did the Jews take when they were in Babylon? One for That's the three musketeers, I believe. And I'm, that's not the chocolate bar either. Right, so, okay. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. And if I do not exalt you over all of my joy, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. That is why, I'm sure those of you who are married, anyone who is married, will know that... Under the chuppah, the groom stomps on a glass and smashes a glass. And everyone says, Mazel Tov. Why do we do that? Some theories say it's the last time he gets to put his foot down. <laughs> Others say it's the last time he gets to break something without being yelled at. You clumsy oaf! Right? However, the true explanation is that that is a sign of the fact that we are remembering the destruction of Jerusalem, even at the time of greatest joy under the chuppah, as we're getting married, the peak of our joy, right? we nevertheless remember Jerusalem is not complete, so we break the glass. And many people have a custom to put ashes on the head of the chatan, of the groom, where his tefillin normally are. Right? Why? Again, the same idea, to remember Jerusalem. And the Jews kept the oath. Not all the Jews came back. Most Jews in Babylon did not come back. But after 70 years, a few hundred thousand Jews did come back to Israel with the prophet Ezra and Nehemiah. And there they rebuilt Israel. They rebuilt Jerusalem. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the land. And it's a very interesting scene, which is described in the Tanakh, which is a very modern day scene. The scene is that they're building with a trowel in one hand to put mortar on the bricks and a sword in the other hand to defend themselves against their enemies, which is an image which we still have today. Because the state of Israel for the past 60 years has been under continuous attack, no matter what we do. When we give back Gaza, we gave back Gaza, Kassams. We withdraw from Lebanon, Hezbollah. Right? It doesn't matter what, but we've been under attack for 60 years, but... A lot of nations which have been under attack for 60 years, you wouldn't expect that they'd be thriving and building. And a lot of nations which are thriving and building, you wouldn't imagine they've been at war for 60 years. 
You look at Israel, first of all, it's the only country that entered the 21st century with a net increase in the amount of trees. Only country is the state of Israel. Right? We have more engineers per capita in the workforce than any other country. We have the most biotech startups per capita than any other country in the world. We have the second to top amount of high-tech startups. The only place higher is Silicon Valley in California. The, uh, the uh, chips for, the, for cell phone technology developed at the Motorola plant in Israel. Uh, instant messaging developed by software engineers in Israel. The world's largest generic drug company is called Teva Pharmaceuticals. It's an Israeli company. We trade more on the Nasdaq than every other country with the exception of America and Canada. Right? The state of Israel's economy is larger than all the other economies of every Arab country put together that surrounds Israel. All the ones that border Israel put all their economies together. Israel's is larger. You know, you know what city in the world has the highest number of chess masters per capita? Be'er Sheva. You know why Be'er Sheva? Because lots of Russian immigrants came to Be'er Sheva. You're walking along in Be'er Sheva and some old guy in the park says, huh, you want to play some chess? Don't do it, he'll kill you. He's probably a grandmaster in chess. He'll like, that's it, You're, oh, it's over. right? But that's an amazing thing. We've been doing it with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other hand. Right? It's an amazing image, which is what Ezra had, and it's the same thing we have today. And it didn't end with Ezra. Ezra rebuilds the temple and Jerusalem and the state of Israel, and it continues to thrive until the Greeks. 200 years into it, 250 years or so, the Greeks come in. And the Greeks try, Greeks try to replace Judaism with Hellenism. They try to redecorate the temple as a Greek temple. They replace falafel with souvlaki. They replace gefilte fish with calamari. They replace kedem wine with ouzo. They replace the horror with the zorba. Right? And they try to have telesavalis old reruns on television. God forbid. Right? So... Uh, but the Greeks tried to destroy us. They were like the Borg of the ancient world. We will assimilate you. Right? That's what they tried to do. Right? And it was the Maccabim, the Hashmonaim, who rose up against the Greeks and re-established a kingdom in Israel, as Maimonides says, for another 200 years. But that kingdom ended badly. Herod, who was a total whack job, right? um, and some historians, myself, call him Herod the whack job, right? uh, he was a great builder, but he was crazy, right? Unfortunately, as a result of a lot of political corruption, intrigue, etc., uh, the Romans came into Israel. The Romans tried to suppress Jewish independence, Jewish rule, Jewish self-determination, and the Jews fought against the Romans. We revolted against the Romans three times, prompting one of the Romans to call us the most revolting of peoples. Right? But after those revolts, you know, the third revolt resulted in the Romans destroying the second temple, which had lasted at that point for 420 years. So they destroyed the second temple, they exiled the Jews all over the Roman world. Some Jews, we we were thrown out of our country unwillingly. We did not willingly leave. The Babylonians extracted us, threw us out. The Assyrians threw us out, the Romans threw us out. And throughout history, as Jonathan Sachs puts it, chief rabbi of England, he puts it, one of the, the most protracted crime against humanity started, was perpetrated at that time. What is the most protracted crime against humanity? It is the crime of trying to prevent the Jewish people from being a nation, from having its natural rights of A, living in its own land, B, self-determination, and C, being together. 
That, the Maharal says, are nat- those are natural components of being a nation. It is natural that you should have self-determination. It is natural that you should be living in your own land. It is natural that you should be together. The exile, the diaspora, uprooted us from our land, scattered us all over the world, and placed us under the whims of every despot, totalitarian dictator, and crazy king throughout history. And that crime was perpetrated for literally thousands of years. And so, but miraculously, miraculously, the Jewish people kept alive the hope of the land of Israel. And it's interesting to note, let's say, you know, in Jewish law, we have a rule. Let's say you lose something. And you lose something in a situation where there's no hope of getting it back. Example, it is Monday afternoon at 5 o'clock, Grand Central Station, Penn Station. You drop your iPod. You don't realize it. You run onto the subway train. You're on the train. And you find, oh no, I dropped it. What's your hope? What are your chances of getting it back? Zero. Right? Now, the truth is, halakhically speaking, if I find the iPod, I don't have to give it back to you. It would be praiseworthy and nice of me to do so, but I don't have to give it back to you. Why don't I have to give it back to you? You gave up hope. Giving up hope is a relinquishment, de facto relinquishment of your rights to the iPod. Let's say, however, I'm in Beit Gavriel for, for, uh, for davening, for prayers, and I drop my iPod at Beit Gavriel. What's the chance of my getting it back? Zero. <laughs> I'm not familiar with Beit Gavriel, but I would hope it's higher than zero. <laughs> Let's take another shul, right? My shul, I don't know. What it is. Someone asked me, how many people pray at your shul? I said, oh, about 10%. Anyway, but, uh, but you see, so your chances of getting it back are pretty high. So therefore, if I find it, I've got to give it back to you. Now, it's interesting. What is it that creates your ownership of that iPod? It is not possession because it's not, under, it's not in your property. It is not control because you don't control it. What connects you to the, what connects you to the iPod? The answer is your hope that you'll get it back. If you still have hope, you're connected to it. It's still yours. The word for hope is tikva, as in the Israeli national anthem, hatikva. Hope. And the word tikva also means thread. When Rachav, who was in the city of Jericho, when the spies that Joshua sent told her to tie a thread to her window so they would not kill her and her family, it says tikva tashani, a thread of thread. So it also means thread. The word kav means a line. It's the line that connects me to something else. And it's the, that, that hope. Now, it's interesting to note that Jewish people, when we were thrown out of Israel, we didn't relinquish that hope. We never once. We, in other words, if you're thrown out of your home, God forbid, against your will. But during the entire time you're out of your home, what do you do? You fight to get it back. You collect money to get a lawyer to get it back. You make complaints to the police. You have pictures of the house and your temporary apartment. You have your entire family pray three times a day facing your old house. Please, God, give it back to me. Right? And not only that, but there's a becher still in the basement, which the original the owners don't know about. These guys are the thugs, the mafia thugs, the sopranos who took it from you, don't know, but there's still a becher in the basement. So you see, the land of Israel is like that. We were thrown out of Israel, but guess what? We left some Jews in the ba- it wasn't the basement, it was the north. But in the Galil, there's always been Jews there. There are places in Israel that have never been without a Jew for thousands of years. And not only that, we were never relinquished hope. Synagogues all over the world face Jerusalem. They face the land of Israel. And Jews pray three times a day all over the world for the restoration. When Jews are buried outside of Israel, you know what's put in the coffin? Aside from the body. Right? They put the 
some earth from the land of Israel. Right? And we've been collecting money to try and get Israel back, to buy the land. Jews have been trickling there for thousands of years. There were people who went, the Nachmanides, who went there in the 12th century, and he found, 13th century, and he found Jerusalem to be desolate. And he rebuilt, he took one of the buildings and he built a synagogue. That synagogue lasted from the 1200s until it was destroyed by the Jordanians in 1948. It is now being rebuilt by the Jerusalem municipality are rebuilding that synagogue in the old city. And there's a small part of it which is still being used since 1967 when we got Israel, when we got Jerusalem back 41 years ago. So that's an amazing type of history. When you think about it, for much of history, the Jews had a passion and a love for the land of Israel. Even if it was reciting poems about Israel, if it was singing before we before we say grace after before we say birkat hamazon, people would say Al Naharot Bavel by the rivers of Babylon where we sat and wept. And if it was on Shabbat, we'd say Shira Ma'alot B'Shuv Hashem at Shivat Zion Hayinu Kachomim. When God returns, the captivity of Zion, we're like dreamers. So Jews have been saying that for years and years and years. I was recently in Rome with one of the Gateways groups and uh, took him to the Arch of Titus. The Jewish community in Rome, the Arch of Titus, was built by the Emperor Titus and also Vespasian to commemorate the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. There on it, you've got pictures of captives carrying the menorah from the temple into Rome, the trumpets from the temple into Rome. And it, it, it shows the ascendancy and the victory of Rome over the Jewish people. The Roman Jewish community never ever walked underneath the Arch of Titus. They had a custom. Even when there was a footpath through there, they would never walk under that arch, except for once. Once the Roman Jewish community walked under the Arch of Titus. You know when that was? That was in 1948 at the establishment of the State of Israel. Independence Day 60 years ago, the Roman Jews walked under it. And they looked up and they said, Titus, (laughs) we're back. Right? And it's quite surprising that we're back. And the fact that we're back is shocking to a lot of people. Right? For Christians and Muslims, it's very disturbing. Why is it very disturbing? Because according to their theology and their understanding and their belief, the Jews should be extinct. <laughs> the Muslims say, we are the true descendants of Abraham. If we're the true descendants of Abraham, why do the Jews have Israel? And the Christians say, the Jews were thrown out of Israel because they didn't accept Jesus. So why are they back in Israel? We certainly didn't accept him. So that, it, it bothers them that we're there. For a lot of people, they look at us and they say, well, you know, it's type of like, I always imagine, it's type of like in Jurassic Park. You're walking along on the beach in Costa Rica, and instead of seeing fossilized dinosaur footprints, which are not going to, you know, you're not going to be scared by fossilized footprints, they're from millions of years ago, right? But you see some fresh dinosaur footprints in the sand, that's a little disturbing, somewhat worrying, Right? You look at that and say, why are there fresh dinosaurs? I thought dinosaurs were extinct. What the heck? Right? So the Jews are not extinct. A lot of people thought we were. We were over and done with. But the Torah promises numerous times, promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God promises them ten times that he's going to give us the land of Israel. And God promises us that the Jews will come back to Israel. And guess what? He's fulfilled that promise. We're back. Right. There are now, the largest Jewish community in the world is the land of Israel. That's the largest Jew, It's not the majority of Jews are still not in Israel, but that's probably going to be changing. Over the next 15 to 20 years, right, the guess is, sociologists predict that, be, that the communities outside of Israel have a low birth rate, 
high assimilation rate, they're dwindling. The Jews community in Israel is growing. Probably it will be the majority of Jews in Israel. But right now, that's the largest Jewish community. If you would have said to a Jew 200 years ago, you know, he goes into, he sees, he's walking along in Warsaw, and there's like a sign, tarot card readings, Madame Zelda. So you say, what the heck, you know, let's see what's going on. Right, so you walk in there, and Madame Zelda says, I predict that in 200 years, the majority of Jews will be in Israel. There'll be 6 million Jews living in a Jewish state in Israel. You'd say, I want my money back now. Right? You'd say she's crazy. Right? Most people would have said she's crazy. Right? But it is interesting that the course of history and God's divine providence combined with the Jews who have been sacrificed themselves to get to the land of Israel, right? those two features, they have combined to bring the Jews back to Israel. So, it is, really, it is really, truly amazing. It is absolutely miraculous. It's miraculous in many ways, whether it's the military victories, whether it's the very survival of the state of Israel, whether it's the fact that it's thriving, that all the agriculture... I mean, Israel, in terms of natural resources, is not an incredibly ideal place. You know, we have oil, natural gas, not a lot, minerals, bauxite, not... No, we don't have a heck of a lot of stuff there, but it has award-winning wines in the Golan Heights produced in Israel. You travel about an hour south, you're going to have bananas, mangoes, pineapples, etc. Right? You travel a little further south, you're going to have flowers. Israel has exported tulip bulbs to Holland. Israeli fruit gets exported all over the world. Our local Costco has Israeli fruit. They proudly advertise it. And of course, religious Jews don't buy it because you have to take mesa and stuff or whatever. Anyway, but they don't understand if they advertise it's Israeli and no one buys it. Whatever. But... It's an amazing thing. Absolutely incredible. Right? So we have this situation where we have the beginnings of the redemption. The Gaon of Vilna said, he sent students to Israel. He said, you know what? There's, there's, the Kabbalists talk about two things. It's arousal of the Jewish people. That is to say, the Jewish people arouse God's divine mercy and compassion by our actions. He says, so if we start coming back to Israel, that will arouse God's compassion and he will help us come back. And that is what Jews did. And it's very interesting. Jews who were devoid of almost every other connection to Judaism started coming back to Israel over a hundred years ago. And they established this incredible, incredible situation that we have. It's not perfect. It's far from perfect, um, as any Israeli will tell you. Right? But, uh, but nevertheless, it's an amazing thing. Yeah? Uh, sorry, quick question. There's a big, big community of Hasidic Jews that believe that Jews shouldn't live in Israel. Like they're no, no. First of all... They're about the, the Jews who are anti-Zionists, about as representative of Judaism as snake-handling sects in Arkansas represent Christianity. Right? In other words, uh, it's, it's meaningless. And by the way, they do not deny the sanctity of the land of Israel. In fact, they don't say you shouldn't live. In fact, there are many anti-Zionist Jews who do live in Israel. They're against a secular state, but not against Israel. Every Jew, every Jew, has a connection to the land of Israel. Right? Out of the 613 commandments that we have, 613 commandments, how many commandments are we obligated in today? 270. 270. That is less than half. You know why? That's right. Because most Jews are not in Israel. We don't have the full infrastructure of Jewish law in Israel. More than half of the commandments directly dependent upon the land of Israel. Let me tell you something Maimonides says. Maimonides says that, he says, 
if you would imagine that there would be no Jew, uh, what's, there are no Jews in Israel at all, he says that's something which is impossible. Because if there's no Jews in Israel, that's considered to be the destruction of the Jewish people. Do you know that? The Chatam Sofer makes that deduction. That he says, if there'd be no Jews in Israel, that would be considered tantamount to the utter destruction of the Jewish people. It would be as if we're no longer a nation. Zero. And not only that, but Maimonides says, if there'd be no Jews in Israel, our calendar would cease to function. We keep Shabbat, because that's every seven days. But Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, etc., couldn't keep it. That means, one socialist kibbutznik, with his shirt open to there, right, living in Israel, allows Hasidim in Borough Park, right, and people who are in Stamford Hill in London, and in Johannesburg, and in East St. Kilda in Melbourne, right, and uh, people in Queens and uh, Forest Hills, etc., right, it enables them to keep, he enables them to keep all our festivals. Because without a representative of the Jewish community living in Israel, our calendar ceases to function. That is how dependent we are upon the land of Israel. Not only that, but the land of Israel also type of is, is the place which brings the Jews together. It is a place of family. I, would, I remember numerous. I remember one of the first times I was in Israel, um, when I first went there, uh, just after high school. I walked into a bank, which is in a place called Geula, which is now a bakery, like most stores there. And um, I walked into this bank for a five-minute transaction, which took approximately half an hour. And... Um, it's 12.30 when I finish, which is closing time. So um, I walk to the door of the bank, and as I'm walking to the door, the security guard runs over and locks the door. So I said, I figured he didn't see me. I said, Sahad, said, I'd like to leave the bank. And he says this. That is Hebrew for, just shut up and wait. Okay, that's Hebrew. Okay, so I said, look, I, I, I understand why you close the bank. You don't want people to come in. It's after closing time, but I've finished. I'd like to leave. So he says, says, shut up and wait, basically. So I said, this is a free country. And as I'm trying to argue with him, I hear behind me, and I turn around, the tellers have all stood up, they've taken out Sidurim, and one of them says, Mincha, afternoon service. I look around, I see I'm the tenth man in the bank. (laughs) I finish my transaction, they say, Minion, lock the door, right? Mincha, right? Only, you can only do that with family. You know what I mean? In America, I'd be suing the bank, right? I mean, you'd be suing, right? Unbelievable. Incarceration, FBI be involved, civil rights suits, that we have pray-ins all over the place. How dare you, whatever. I mean, great, right? In Israel, it was a normal thing. I, was in, I went to a phone booth. I was phoning my parents. When I was in the army years ago. It was snowing. This is before all Israelis had cell phone implantation, right? So uh, I think, I believe it's one of the highest rates of cell phone saturation in the world is Israel. It's unbelievable, right? So anyway, I walk into this phone booth. It's snowing outside. I'm phoning Australia on an Israeli public telephone in an army base. You know, it was not an easy thing in the first place, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm phoning, and then I, I feel the door open, and a guy gets in the phone booth with me. <laughs> I, I said, I said, Slicha? Uh, and he said, Babakasha? Excuse me, he says, go ahead. I said, what do you mean, go ahead? I'd like to make a private call. He says, what does it say here? I says, I know it says public phone, but I'm making a private call on the public phone. You know what I'm so he says, he says, who's stopping you? I said, I'd like to make a private call. He says, what are you, a spy? 
there is a sense of family in the land of Israel. There's a sense of community there. Right? Even though there's tension, even though there's arguments, Jews love to argue. Right? Someone once asked, I once asked an officer in the army, I said, why? We've got hundreds of thousands of men with weapons in Israel. Why has there never been a military coup? Military takeover. He said, he said, easy. I said, what's easy? He says, in order to have a military coup, you need at least three or four people to agree with each other on the general. <laughs> right? And then they get together and they say, this is what we're doing. He says, we don't have that. We just don't have that. But there's a good thing about it. There's a certain sense of family in the land. You take the reason you have that type, you feel that way is because it's a sense of family. I'm just, and I'm, in, in, in many, many different ways. That's the land of Israel is a unifying force of the Jewish people. The Torah ultimately is our ultimate defining and unifying force. But as the Maharal says, it is natural for a, for a nation to have a land, and the land of Israel is our natural land. Uh, we are the Aborigines of Israel. Right? It's interesting, you know, I remember seeing the passion. Uh, that is, you know, Mel Gibson's movie about Jesus. I felt this movie should be sent to every Zionist organization in the world as compulsory viewing for everyone. This is the most Zionistic movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Anyone seen Mel Gibson's movie? You don't have to admit it. Okay, but okay, you did see it. Okay, fine. I saw it too. Okay. But I saw it so I could give a lecture about it. You know, that's... Okay. So anyway, so... Um, uh, but what happens... I'm, I'm saying, why is it a Zionist movie? Very simple. Right? There are two groups of people in that movie. Who are the true groups of people? Romans and, Romans and the Jews. Where are the Arabs? <laughs> There's not one Palestinian in the movie. Well, they'll say, well, the Jews were never there. We were there. I say, fine, so you killed Jesus. They'll say, no, no, you killed him. I say, oh, so we were there. Oh, no, you weren't. I say, well, look, one, one way or the other. Either you guys killed Jesus, right? In which case, we're off. We're off the hook, right? Or you weren't there, in which case it's our land. But that's what it is. That's what it was. Right? It's an amazing thing. But again, it is the land that actually unites together the Jewish people's family. I remember my wife and I uh, first, uh, first got married. We got a small apartment in Kiryat Moshe. And we paid, the rent was $200 a month. This is in 1985. $200 a month, okay, which is amazing. The government... Because we were both new immigrants, the government paid $170 a month of that. So we're paying 30 bucks a month rent, right? Now, before we actually got the apartment, we had, to get a, we had to get this loan from the government for it. It was a loan which, if you stay in Israel for longer than 10 years, it, it, they, they uh, let it go, so, which we did. So, but anyway, so we went to the bank. They told us we needed four guarantors. Four people to sign as guarantors for the loan. Certain age, Israeli citizens, certain income. It was a hassle to get this. We did it. So we're at the bank. So we had our four guarantors had signed. The lady at the bank says, uh, Where's your fifth guarantor? I said, what fifth? <laughs> I said, the Aliyah Shaliyah said four. She said, the Aliyah Shaliyah is in Australia. She says, I'm here with the stamp. Right? You know, she didn't say, nye, nye, kush, kush, but she could have, almost, right? So she said, I can't. I said, how am I? Anyway, there's a guy walking by and he sees our distress. I said, we had to sign the contract that afternoon. He walks by, he says, Ma I said, what's the problem? He said, what's the problem? I said, look, I said, we had four guarantors for the loan. We need to sign for our apartment this afternoon, right? We lose it if we don't sign for it, right? She's telling me now I need a fifth guarantor. He says, I I never met the guy in my life. He says, I'll sign. He said, Kol Yisrael Arevim every Jew is responsible one for the other. May as well be on paper. And he signed. Unbelievable. Now, there's a status in Israel, I'm sure your brother had this, called Chayal Boded. 
Chayal Bodet is the following. If a, someone makes Aliyah and he joins the Israeli army and his immediate family lives outside of Israel, he is called Chayal Bodet, which means a lone soldier. My son is a Chayal Bodet. His family, me and my family, we live here. He lives in Israel. Every single... So the Israeli army basically adopts him. Every Yom Tov, Hanukkah, they gave him a $200 gift certificate at a clothing store in Israel, which the officer must deliver to his house, to his apartment. And Pesach, the army phones him. He's got Pesach off. They say, we need to drop something off at your apartment. When will you be there? He tells them, a truck pulls up, two big cartons of all Pesach groceries for the entire Pesach, dropped off at my son's apartment. I said to my son, we're thinking of moving back to Israel. He said, not while I'm in the army, please. <laughs> I said, I'll lose my status. Right? It was unbelievable. I visited Israel with, a, with, with our group, Rage. It was a, when was that? That was last January, December, I think it was. He tells his officer, my father's here. He says, take the time off. See your father. After a year, right, my good, right, after a year in the army, they'll pay for a ticket to go back to your country of origin so you can see your family. Can you imagine the Marines doing this? I don't think so. Right? There's a certain level at which we are a, we're, we're a family, and it's an amazing, amazing thing. So the history of the Jewish people surrounds, revolves around Israel. The spiritual qualities of Israel, the commandments applicable there, the calendar attached there, prophecy, always, always, prophecy is attached to the land of Israel. Either they prophesied in Israel or about Israel, but prophecy is connected to the land of Israel. And not only, but now we have to ask a question, right, why do we need a state at all? Why? So first of all, you could point out, and this is pointed out very beautifully by Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who says, you know what? Everyone needs a country. He says, he quotes, he quotes Robert Frost, the poet Robert Frost, who says the following. Beautiful. He says, he says, everyone needs a home. Robert Frost says, the place where, when you have to go there, they have to take you in. That's what home is. Home is when you have to go there, they've got to take you in. What other country can we say that about? Syria, where Jews lived for a thousand years. Right? Can we say that about Iran, where Jews have lived for 2,000 years? Can we say that about Iraq, where Jews lived for 2,500 years? Can we even say that about America? During the Second World War, when Jewish refugees wanted to come to America to escape the Nazi death camps, did America just say, okay, any Jew wants to come, come in? No, I don't think so. In fact, I don't believe that their, uh, their refugee or immigration quotas were even filled at that time. Then, illegal immigration was a no-no. When the St. Louis, the ship St. Louis, came to, came to America and tried to get refuge here, it was turned away. The people went back to Europe, they were killed. England accepted some Jews, some they put in prison camps, some they sent to Australia, and some they didn't allow in. And when the Jews wanted to come back to Israel during the Second World War, the British turned them away. They sent them back to Europe, even after the Second World War was over. There's only one place where if I want to go there, they have to accept me, and that's the state of Israel. That's a home. So that's one reason. But I think there's something more to it than just that. Why do the Jewish people need a country? I mean, Judaism. Think about it in the following way. Judaism, if you think of Judaism as a religion, why does a religion need a country? I mean, can you not be a good religious Jew without a country? For instance, do Christians have a country? 
I mean, there are 80 countries or so which are Christian countries. But they don't need a, 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 a land, right? There's no specifically Christian country where they have to build a country. Muslims. Granted, one of the five pillars of Islam is Hajj. They have to make pilgrimage to Mecca. But, but I don't think Saudi Arabia wants all the Muslims to move to Saudi Arabia. I think I find it hard to believe, right? I don't think so. Right? What does it mean that we have a country? Why do we need a country from a religious perspective? From a spiritual perspective, why does Judaism need a country at all? Why can't I live a full religious life in Queens, Brooklyn? I mean, there's many answers to that. But let's say, right, why can't I live that? The answer is the following. Because you see, Judaism, in the strict sense, is not a religion. Jews are a nation with a mission. We are a nation who is supposed to exemplify and bring into the world God's morality, his laws, and his presence into every single aspect of life. In order to do that, we have to build a society. That means we're supposed to build an entire society built upon Torah and upon Judaism. It is not enough. We living here in a basically Christian country. Basically. It made, there's a separation of church and state. Granted. Right? And we have wonderful religious freedom here in the United States. And in the democracies where Jews live, whether it be England, Australia, right, Canada, even New Zealand. Anyway, but I mean, where Jews live, yes, we have freedom of religion, but that's not what it's about. In other words, the fact that we are, we are because we're living, we're not building the society here. We're not building the society here. We are contributing to a general society, and we are living our compartmentalized religious life. But ultimately and ideally, what we're really supposed to be doing is building an entire society from the bottom up, from scratch, based on what? Based on Judaism. Whereby that society, you look at the agriculture, it will flow in the rhythm of tithe, Shemitah, sabbatical year, Truma, Maser Shani, ties to the Levites going to the temple. It's going to flow. You look at the calendar of that country, the calendar flows in the rhythm of the Jewish festivals and the Jewish calendar. You look at the business in that country, it follows Jewish business law, Jewish business ethics. You look at the day of rest in that country, it's Shabbat. You look at that country, you look at that society, and it is a model of what Judaism is about. Just to quote to you what Rabbi Hirsch puts, how Rabbi Hirsch puts it. He's asked a question. He says, you know, the Jewish people are called a kahal uh, amim, a family of nations, a congregation of people, like a, a nation of all different... And you have to ask yourself, why did God create us as 12 tribes? What, Jews are not... We're not argumented enough as it is. We have to have tribes. You know, it's like... It, it, it's not like we're like you know, easy to get along with. We're stubborn, right? It's amazing. I mean, the Israeli army is an excellent army. Probably the best in the world. One thing they're not good at. What's the one thing the Israeli army is lousy at? Marching. You don't have lots of coordinated marches in the Israeli army. People like all walking in step and they're twirling batons. The whole world. You see armies do West Point. The whole world. They do this. Israel's lousy at that. You know why? Because they're Jewish. <laughs> we don't like marching in step everyone you know like Germans could march for centuries they, yeah, they love marching every single one of them in perfect sign big deal let them march right over a cliff who cares right the Jewish people right we're not into that right we're not into marching we don't you know we don't coordinate that well so if that's true why does God divide us into 12 tribes why do that? And each tribe was, was radically different. They were, each one had its own unique component. There were tribes who were great warriors. There were tribes who were legal scholars. There were tribes who were astronomers. 
mathematicians, authors, poets, gourmets. Every tribe had its own unique talents, personalities, characteristics. The answer is, Rufus says, because the following. The nation is to represent agriculture as well as commerce, the military as well as culture and learning. The Jewish people are supposed to be a nation of farmers, businessmen, soldiers and scientists. And thereby, as a model nation, to establish the truth that the one great personal and national calling that which God revealed in his Torah is not dependent on any particular kind of calling or trait, but that the whole of mankind, in all its shades of diversity, can have a relationship with God. How do we show people that? We, don't, we cannot show people that if all the Jews are exactly the same. Everyone's in yeshiva. Everyone's in seminary. Everyone is a doctor or a lawyer. Right? Can't be. Right? The Jewish people have to be an incredibly diverse bunch. In other words, building an entire nation. And a nation needs everything. A nation needs garbage collectors and plumbers. And the nation needs lawyers and it needs doctors. And it needs a general. It needs army. Right? It needs every single component. And all of those can be examples of what Judaism is about. That is why we need a country. We need a country to be the ultimate place for building a society based on Torah and Judaism. Even though the modern day state of Israel is basically uh, officially a secular country, ruled by wasps, white Ashkenazi socialist paratroopers. <laughs> However, right, that... Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, recent polls, most Israelis look at themselves as traditional. The majority of Israelis don't look at themselves as secular. They look at themselves as traditional. Not necessarily religious, but traditional. Probably about 95 to 99% of houses in Israel have mezuzahs on the door. And the contractors don't give out the mezuzahs for free, I can tell you that. Right? You go to your kablan, Efar mezuzah, right? you'll be lucky to escape with your life. Right? In other words, the, but... And the majority of the country eats kosher. And you know what? Sometimes it's very nice to see Jewish values represented in Israel in interesting ways. I remember seeing in a magazine, army magazine, called Bamachaneh, there was a picture of Ehud Barak, who at the time was chief of staff of the Israeli army. He was standing next to a visiting Argentinian general. Now, Ehud Barak was wearing a not very well ironed Israeli army uniform, <laughs> right, with paratrooper wings, few falafel, right, and one or two campaign uh, ribbons. Anyone ever seen an Argentinian general? Don't look at him in the sunlight, you'll go blind. This guy had medals from head to toe. Bullets would bounce off him. <laughs> the guy had never seen anything like it, right? And we looked at him like, oh my God, and he lost the Falklands. You probably don't remember the Falklands. Okay. But they lost the Falklands. So he's standing there and I said, what a beautiful photo. You know, if you go to military bases just about anywhere in the world, you see, you'll see people walking around with lots of medals. I spoke at Fort Dix at a chaplain's conference. Because I used to be a chaplain in Israel. I also spoke to the American uh, Air Force, uh, uh, yeah, Air Force, Navy, Marine and Army chaplains. Right. And uh, Jewish chaplains. And uh, Fort Dix. You go to Fort Dix, people got medals all over the place. It's amazing. In Israel, I've been to military bases all over Israel, never saw that. I never saw people with lots of medals. This is very, because Judaism, we don't believe, we're not pacifists. We believe in self-defense. We believe self-defense is a right and an obligation to defend yourself. Right? We don't believe in turn the other cheek. In fact, no one really does. Christians say it, but as Bertrand Russell pointed out, the only time Christians have generally said turn the other cheek is after they just hit a Jew on one cheek. They said, do you mind turning the other one? Thank you. Right? But no one really turns the other cheek. That's not our concept. We believe in self-defense. 
defend yourself. It's a right and it's an obligation. But, even though we believe in self-defense, even though we think you have to pick up a gun when you need to, right? nevertheless, we don't glorify war. It's a very Jewish thing. We don't glorify war. We don't have the machismo of the South American society necessarily. We have the big military parades and the ribbons and the whole works. We're not into that. We're not into that. It's almost we're uncomfortable with it. As someone once pointed out, I don't remember who it was, but you know, they said, if Israel would lay down its weapons, God forbid, there wouldn't be an Israel. If the Arabs would lay down their weapons, there'd be world peace. You can think about that. Matt, right? If all the Muslims would lay down their weapons, the world would be a great place, right? pretty much. We wouldn't have Darfur, conflicts in Indonesia, Kashmir, the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, etc., etc. Right? I mean, unbelievable how many conflicts would be instantly resolved. Israel would lay down its arms, God forbid. Israel would be wiped off, God forbid, the face of the planet. Okay, uh, no Israeli soldier really wants to be there. Is, you know, I'm sure there are a few guys who are crazies, but the vast majority of Israeli soldiers, they don't want to be fighting. They do not want to be fighting. They're not out there saying, I want to die for the cause. They're not saying that. They're saying, I wish I would never have to pull the trigger of this gun. And if we wouldn't have aggression against us, we wouldn't fire a bullet. Not one bullet would leave an Israeli gun if there wouldn't be people shooting missiles at us, trying to kill us at every opportunity. We withdrew from Gaza. We withdrew from Lebanon. We withdrew from Sinai. We talked about withdrawing from 97% of Judea and Samaria. And they still attacked us. An intifada, missiles, another war, another war. It's unbelievable. So Israel is a very unique country. Uh, And I would say we should be proud of some of the Jewish values which are there within the country, even though it's secular. But the Jewish value of self-defense on the one hand, but not, glorif- not glorifying war on the other hand, the value of peace, amazing. should be very proud of that. The idea of family and the fact that Israel, by the way, has sent medical aid and emergency aid to countries it doesn't even have diplomatic relations with. Not because Israel doesn't want it, because they don't want it. Israel sent jumbo jets full of medical supplies during the tsunami to Indonesia, a country which doesn't recognize Israel. Israel has sent search and rescue teams to African countries when they've had earthquakes and terrorist attacks. When Iran had a huge earthquake many years ago, Israel was one of the first countries to offer aid to Iran. Iran refused. Which brings to mind Golda Meir's statement, one of the first prime ministers of Israel. She said once, she said, you know what? We'll only have peace when the Arabs love their own children more than they hate our children. But as long as they hate our children more than they love their own, we cannot have peace. She is so right. And I have a friend whose two sons are medics and the paratroopers, highly trained medics. They spent, I remember, it was a long time ago, there was an earthquake in Turkey. Probably people don't remember it. I remember an earthquake in Turkey. They spent Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur and Sukkot in Turkey. In a mash, a mobile medical unit, caring for Turkish Muslim earthquake victims. Israel does that continuously. Israel has taken in refugees from Africa. Israel has taken in refugees from Asia. The nation of Israel, the state of Israel, by the way, when it was first founded, had 600,000 Jews. Do you know how many refugees were taken in by Israel, Jewish refugees from Arab countries, over the next five years? Do you have any idea? Approximately? Half a million. A country of 600,000 absorbs about 500,000 refugees. And the country just started. It was a third world country at the time. So you have a country, can you imagine that? 
Somebody, can you imagine America doing that? I mean, they are doing it, but not officially. Whatever. I mean, imagine America absorbing, right, 300 million penniless refugees over the next five years. I mean, it's unbelievable. Israel did that. Israel, 600,000, absorbs 500,000 Jewish refugees from the Arab countries who were thrown out. So we have a much to be proud of. There's a lot to be critical of, guarantee. Right? There's a lot to criticize. Right? There's a lot to improve. There's a lot to perfect. But one thing's for sure. Right? What we witness in the establishment of the State of Israel, what we witness in the ingathering of Jews from all over the world, I mean, Albania. I only knew Albania existed because it's one of the five countries in Europe starting with an A, according to Trivial Pursuit. Right? And then I find out all the Albanian Jews are in Israel. I mean, it's unbelievable. Ethiopian Jews, I mean, the tribe of Dan, one of the ten lost tribes. We found one. Mum, we found a tribe. Right? That's unbelievable. Right? And they've, they've come back. Right? So they've come back to Israel. We have this amazing ingathering of the exiles. We have a successful country. It's absolutely miraculous. I went to Israel, gave a tour to two guys. One of them, not religious, said, I'd like to see a miracle. If I would see a miracle, if God would show me a miracle, I'd be in. I said, come on, I'm going to show you a miracle. So I took him to a guy in the Israeli government by the name of Effie Eitam, who at the time was Minister, Minister of Infrastructure of the State of Israel. And we schmoozed with Effie Eitam. And I said, there you go, here's a miracle. He said, what? So I said, Effie, tell him the story. Effie Eitam tells him his story. His grandparents from Lithuania were math tutors who were murdered by the Lithuanian neighbors during the Second World War. They were socialists. They were atheists. He says, let's go back, right, about 70 years. If you would have told my grandparents, he says, that their grandson would be, they'd have a grandson who is a rabbi. They would think you're nuts. They'd say, socialism is in. Judaism is out. Atheism is in. Belief in God is on the way out. They'd say, it's not going to happen. You'll also tell them, and by the way, you'll also have a grandson who's going to be a commander of special forces in a Jewish army. Imagine telling that to a Lithuanian Jew 80 years ago. They'll think, <laughs> you're really crazy. I don't, know what you're, what are you, I don't know what you're taking. You should adjust your meds or something, because this is crazy. They'll say, also you'll have a grandson who has a degree in political science and mathematics from a Hebrew-speaking university in the ancient port city of Haifa. They'll say, ridiculous. I'll say, also you'll have a grandson who will be a minister of infrastructure in an Israeli Jewish government building pipelines and gas infrastructure across Israel, they'll say you are absolutely out of your mind. And then you tell them, and by the way, all of those grandsons are one guy. Here's a guy who was brought up on a socialist kibbutz on the shores of the Kinneret, because one of his parents, one of their sons of his grandparents in Lithuania survived the war, and his parents were socialists as well. And they brought him up as a good socialist. And he joined the army, he was, went into elite commando forces, he was in the Sayeret Matkal, which is the uh, general staff recon unit, the guys did Entebbe, very elite unit. And he was a commander of that unit, and he parachuted behind enemy lines in Lebanon. And he started to think, losing comrades in battle, he started to think, what the heck am I doing? I want to fight, if I want democracy, I can get democracy in the States without fighting for it. Right? You can have democracy if someone else fights for us. Right? We have this volunteer army, very convenient, which we appreciate or actually, we don't appreciate, but we should. But he thought to himself, I can go to America. I'm not going to be conscripted. I can have democracy without fighting. He says, McDonald's, I'll get better than McDonald's in America. And the rabbi's telling me, no cheese. He says, so what am I doing? So he started, to, he took out his Tanakh, 
his Torah that he got at the end of basic training, he starts reading it. He starts reading it cover to cover. And he realizes, you know what? The Jews have a destiny. The Jewish people have a national destiny. We've been going through history with a national, and that national destiny is linked to the land of Israel. And he decided to go to a yeshiva and he started studying Torah. And eventually he got good at it and he, became, he got smicha, he became a rabbi. And he went to Haifa University, he got a degree in political science and math. And he went into the government and he became minister of infrastructure under Ariel Sharon's government. So here you've got a guy who's a rabbi, a commando, a politician, a mathematician, right, and has returned to Judaism. So there he is. I said to this guy, there's your miracle. One guy. And guess what? There's millions like him. I mean, not exactly like him, but there's, but there's, there's millions of Jews in Israel, right? And every single one of them, in a sense, is a miracle. And the fact that we're there is a miracle. And the fact that we, that we're able to visit there, we're able to go there, we're able to, to, to live there, etc., is absolutely miraculous. And it is absolutely necessary. It is our natural place of habitation. It's our natural right to have self-determination. It's our natural right to live together. And it's our natural right to be in our land. The fact that we're in Israel is miraculous, yes, but it's also natural. Nothing could be more natural than Jews living in the land of Israel. It's more natural for Jews to live in Israel than for Americans to live in America. Most Americans should either be in Ireland, England, or Germany. That's where most of them are from. You know who should remain here? The Comanches, the, Nav- the Navajos, and the various tribes that were wiped out. Cherokees, etc. Right? Who should, it's, is it natural for English people to be in Australia? No. Natural for the Aborigines to be in Australia. Right? It's much more natural for Jews to be in Israel than for Americans to be in America. And the fact, so it's natural, yes, but on the other hand, it's a miracle. It's a miracle that we're actually, that, that nature is there, considering our history, considering our present, our present time. So what we did today was appreciate a little bit of what we have, gratitude, not taking it for granted, as Rabbi Rutenberg said, and uh, happy birthday to everyone on the 60th anniversary of the State of Israel's founding, but really the thousands and thousands of anniversary of the Jewish people being in Israel, and we should, uh, may we continue to see the end of the redemption. We've seen the beginning of it. Let us merit to see the end of the redemption. Amen. Amen.